Hi everyone, this is the sixth episode of my podcast, Millennials Unfiltered. My name is Boon Chong and I'm joined today by two guests. My first guest is Vera, who has worked extensively in the media publication space and is currently a senior writer at Confirm Good. My second guest is Mark Goh, who is the founder of Vanilla Law LLC, a law firm that serves the SME community in Singapore. So for full disclosure, Mark is both my mentor and my boss. You know, before we proceed, maybe both of you can help share a bit more about yourself. Vera, perhaps you would like to go first? Okay, sure. So uh, like you mentioned, I'm a senior writer now at a publication. So I cover mostly like lifestyle news, current affairs, and also food. And my company, we own like a collective on Telegram. So if you are in one of those uh, very big Telegram channels, chances are it's probably owned by us. I think we have close to 20 channels and they all cater to like different... Uh, audiences and demographics so it, basically we just post like the latest happenings good deals and everything so we dominate the telegram space so that's what my company does thanks a lot vera and mark maybe you could delve a bit into yourself as well hi everyone good morning from the uk so i'm actually now based in the uk a little bit about myself i suppose i am the old guy to give a different perspective uh, in this in this talk so I started out. <laughs> I, I started out uh, my own law firm about twenty eight years ago. So I've been in practice uh, for almost twenty eight years. Of course, the law firm did not start out as vanilla law. We went through at least five iterations in terms of the branding, in terms of the message, in terms of even its business model. So. Uh, I, I think hopefully this will be the last iteration because uh, I'm about to retire and uh, hopefully be able to hand over you know, uh, to a younger generation uh, when I retire. So that's me. Okay, thanks so much, Mark. The topic that we'll be discussing today, the three of us, is FIRE, which is short for Financial Independence Retire Early, which represents following a very aggressive investing style and saving strategy with the aspiration of retiring at a very young age, which is depending on who you ask, you know, you can be tagged at, say, your 40s, your 30s, and maybe for even the most gung-ho millennials and Gen Zs, maybe even their 20s. Now, FIRE started predominantly as a Western concept and was born from the passions of young adults who reject the notion that Income earning through means of employment must steer and dominate the bulk of you know, one's adult life. And these young adults believe that the reward for, of retirement should not be exclusive to the elderly in their golden years, but should be reaped at a much earlier time at the prime of their life. And of course, this fire movement can't be viewed in a vacuum, but perhaps more appropriately viewed hand in hand with this growing sense of burnout amongst young workers, reports of growing disengagement at work and maybe seen from a much higher abstract level, a lack of meaning in mundane work life. So perhaps to kick us off, Vera, maybe you can share a bit about, you know, maybe when you first heard or learned about FIRE, it's, you know, what it means to you and how it sparked any interest. Okay. Um, I think regarding FIRE, right, so how I found out about the subject, uh, it's quite funny, like, it was true, like, you know, my like, Wall Street bet friends and finance bros, that kind of thing, and... So, oh yeah, for context, right, Wall Street Bets is like a Reddit thread. So it's like a forum where like everybody who invests and are into like finance and investing, it's like a whole cesspool of people together. So yeah, I actually heard the term fire from uh, my friends who are in this community. Okay, okay. Um, the recording is working just fine. I just checked. Okay. Yeah, so you know so the, you know the message. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, maybe I can repeat the question and then uh, we can we can do your answer again. Yeah. So it's a bit more seamless for the editing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. So, no, it's okay. Sorry. Yeah, so uh, perhaps to kick us off, Vera, maybe you can share a bit about when you first heard or learned about FIRE, you know, how it sparked your interest and maybe what sources of information you turned to in order to learn more about finance. Mm, okay. So um, FIRE right, is actually quite a new concept to me. I've never heard of it until like I mixed around with like my finance bro friends <clears throat> and people who hang out on Wall Street Bets. So for context, right, Wall Street Bets is like a, a Reddit thread uh, where people who like invest and are interested in stocks, um, they all gather there. 
And uh, I actually found out through like speaking to my friends who are part of that community. So um, at first when I found out about the, the whole concept of fire, I didn't really understand it. But after being in the workforce for a while, I can understand why people will want to aim to chung or like work as hard as they can right now and uh, leave the workforce early. But that being said, like, I think people who aim for the fire mentality, right, they, they don't just aim to leave the workforce after 40, but I think what they want to do is that they want to achieve financial independence so that they can explore other avenues after they are 40, such as like starting a business or like traveling or doing other things that they, they can't otherwise do while being a salary man. I wouldn't say that I personally adopt the fire mentality, but being exposed to it more has definitely helped me to see like both sides of the story. Yeah, I see. Thank, mm-hmm. Thanks a lot, Vera. I, I think that, you know, the way you explain the FIRE movement, I guess it's largely correct because, you know, with those who take a more balanced view of FIRE, see it as like being, having the ability or option to retire at a certain age, but not necessarily mm-hmm. retiring, right? Because you know, it's like a look-see-look-see look-see approach. Right? Mm-hmm. You adopt certain aspects of this movement in hopes of reaching financial independence and whether you follow on with the next two letters, which is like retire early, right, it's completely up to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, actually, I have a question before we go to Mark's view on this. You, mm-hmm. know, you said that where you learned the term was Wall Street Bets, which I find quite funny, <laughs> to be honest. Like, uh, you know, because, you know, Wall Street Bets is like where the AMC and the GameStop, <laughs> yes. those like a bit more degenerate stock buying, disgust and flex, right? So people like, you know, you know, there's stuff like Lost Pawn, where people post that they lost 90% yeah. of their wealth yeah. for the yeah, past few yeah. Yeah, and those are the biggest posts, most viral posts on Wall Street Bets. Because <laughs> you know, at that point, Wall Street Bets was the most viewed forum on the entire Reddit forum website. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering, right? You know, in learning about fire from that forum, right? Then did you have to maybe take everyone's word for what fire was and how to approach it with a pinch of salt? Because you know, it's not actually the most Mm-mm. like reliable yeah. source of information. <laughs> I would say you could let me say that. Yeah. Yeah. Understand. Understand. Okay. Uh, to to be clear, I I didn't learn about fire on the forum but it's still my friends who are on the forum so yeah i know like forum is where like all the apes gather that's what they call themselves right and and there's also a very strong emphasis on doing their dd which is like due diligence like you know so take their advice with a pinch of salt and don't just take their word wholesale and okay the only reason why i know all these terms right and and jargon is because my boyfriend is literally one of those people on wall street pets and so i think i wouldn't take their word wholesale and uh, like they always say, right, do your own due diligence. So please, this is a disclaimer that Reddit is not a good source for financial advice, just saying. But yeah, doing a due diligence on it is, is very important. And uh, as for the uh, FIRE, I feel like, like you mentioned, FI, financial independence, is important. And I think as far as possible, most people would love to have that. But the RE part, which is retire early, like you mentioned, whether you decide to do that or whether you decide to you know continue amassing your wealth and working, those are two separate things. So I, I would say like if you ask for my opinion on the whole concept, right, I would identify more with the first half of it and not so much the second half. Because I do see merit in like staying in the workforce and like giving back in different ways. Because you know, when you're in different phases of your life, you give back to society in, in different ways if that makes sense. So, like, I don't know if retiring early is my thing, but... Yeah, thank, thanks so much, Vera. Now, I wanted to ask, how do you personally feel like having heard from Vera and, you know, learning about the FIRE movement? Maybe you can start with, have you heard of this term before? And if so, where do you hear it from? And how do you personally feel about this movement towards financial independence, you know, and retiring at a much earlier age? Coming from the standpoint of, you know, a member of the baby boomers. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you, Bujong and Vera. I, you know, I, w- I want to start off I really thank you guys for inviting me, the old guy, into this channel. Um, because when I first heard about this term, it was about five years ago. And how I came across this term was while I was surfing this phenomenon, surfing on this phenomenon known as the, you know, they had this hotel and workspaces for digital nomads. So they, they were... They were advertising for people to <coughs> stay in exotic locations and also be able to work. And then um, mm. there was a mention of this word fire. And that seems to be like the lifestyle kind of thing. So I really did not have a deep dive understanding of uh, what that meant. I had an imagery that was presented to me 
by the digital nomad space. So, so uh, that was the extent or surface level ex- uh, understanding of this term. But I want to pick up on some things that Vera spoke about, which seems to go deeper than the surface level imagery that I had in mind. The first concept that she spoke about was the short horizon. And then the second concept that I wanted to pick up on is uh, the concept of retirement. Because uh, I think I'm about that age. And this concept has uh, caused me to think a lot uh, these days. And I've been reflecting about this concept uh, kind of a lot as well. Now, in terms of the first concept of horizon, let me share with you something maybe I, I don't know whether you're aware of in the dot-com era. Before the dot-com era, Vera is right that my generation, we were more, most concerned about getting a good steady job. The key in that point in time was the five Cs, like credit card, condo, cash, uh, and so forth. And then with a steady good income, you will basically get a good life. And I don't think people um, thought about retiring early. They thought more about, you know, uh, working until the end of the career and then they retire like not normal people do. But I think what the dot-com era did was that it showed people that if you had a good idea and if you could be able to find funding, then you will be able to exit at a young age. And then that started the digital nomad phenomenon. But I think to most people of my age, it was like a lottery. That means if you got if you got it, good for you. We are we are happy for you because we realize that most normal normal people like us, right, we are not gonna touch lottery like that. So so that was what we, we viewed it as in a short horizon. So there are people, there are examples of people who exited on a short horizon. Then came the problem of what are you going to do with your time? Because then that leads into the question of retirement. So a lot of people who exited as multi-millionaires around 40 or 50, they, I mean, I have experience and I know of friends who, who were lucky enough to strike this golden ticket of lottery. They retired early. So they then started to find that their life was meaningless. You know? <laughs> It is a strange concept, but it is a real concept. And I am at this age now, and I cannot imagine myself sitting around doing nothing. Absolutely nothing. And I also cannot imagine myself sitting uh, on a beach doing absolutely nothing, drinking, <laughs> drinking pina colada all day. <laughs> so, so I think we have to reflect on the word retirement pretty you know we have to rethink this word retirement maybe you can share with me what your thing as a millennial on the word retirement yeah no it's so interesting that you say that you know you know people of your age will find that post retirement if you get to if you get out of the workforce early right then there's no meaning in the time that they spend post work so I, I think that would be like quite an alarming thing to hear or to think about for millennials who are desperate to get out of the workforce. Because the reason that they want to get out of the workforce as soon as possible is because they, they find that their work is completely devoid of meaning. Like all they mm. do is they wake up, they slog for like 9 to 12 hours a day and then they just die after work and go, go to sleep, right? And then they, re- they reach and repeat until their next holiday. And then they find, oh, there's no meaning in this. I want to retire at 40 or 35 or something. So this like, I am open to some people is their exit plan from the workforce. And then mm-hmm. I think what they can't see or what they you know tend to not really consider is the prospect or the possibility that once they get there, let's say the ones who succeed in getting there, they have the same problem, right? Because they come out and then they, they don't have time. Uh, they, they don't have anything of interest and they just like sit at the beach drinking the pina colada and like, wait a minute, like there's no meaning in this either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think to reflect on all this as a whole, you know, it's easier for me to adopt a third-person perspective because personally, I I don't see that, I don't see the meaning in retiring early to do those kind of fanciful things. Partly because I feel that you know, 
you don't derive meaning from exiting the workforce and then hoping that the world is going to give you a place where you are able to pursue your interests, you know, whatever your non-existent interests right now may be. But more so like, you know, finding meaning in creating something out of your career and your work and being proud of, you know, what you're doing in life. Even though I know all these are very abstract terms. But I mean, it's just a more sobering thought because in a way, what you brought up, right, is like asking millennials to choose between the devil and the deep blue sea. You know, in your pursuit for like, quote unquote, what their idea of happiness is, just at our age group, you know, for many people, exiting the workforce as soon as possible, will it actually reach that end of, you know, that perceived idea of happiness? And that's why I think that your your question kind of conjures up in people's minds. And maybe Vera, you can also like give your take on what do you think of you know this idea of retire of retirement. My my editor used to tell me that youth is wasted on the young, which is true. And <laughs> oh my god, that's a terrible. <laughs> that is terrible. I, I mean, I'm shocked you actually believe that statement. <laughs> wait, wait, let me finish. Because um, like we are in quite a conundrum, right? Like when you're young, you have energy, you have time, but you don't have money. And then like when you grow older, you it's the reverse. Like you have assets, you have wealth, but you don't really have that much mobility. And I think I think that's that's what like fuels this whole like vicious cycle of like okay, I want to retire early, but after I retire early, then there's nothing more to life. And um, it's like you know how they say hindsight is a beautiful thing, right? Like when you look back and you realize that. Well, actually, uh, why did I why did I even uh work so hard when I was younger? Cause you know, if I had known how things had, would have panned out, I would have been able to like you know take it easier or something like that. So I think there's validity in both, like people who adopt the fire mindset and people who don't. But yeah, like I I agree with Mark when he says that I can't imagine myself being sixty and not doing anything with my life per se. Like I would I would definitely want to still maybe my life won't look like how it looks like now. But I would probably move on to, you know, contribute in like ways that I never imagined that I could. But yeah, I I understand your analogy of the pina colada thing because I could never also, yeah. Can, can I just uh, chime in here slightly to jump? Yeah, go ahead. Um, as as Vera was talking and as she brought up, I, I mean, I I cannot help but react to to her statement uh, and and the remark by her ex editor. <laughs> and and it struck me that um, I didn't think too much when I first started out about retirement early. So if you look at the word fire, right, um, I wasn't concerned about the RE, the retire early, as, uh, as my concern. I in fact focused more on my obsession from day one was financial independence. Okay. And that, I admit, was my very first obsession. And, well, it's no more. I, I think I have achieved it at uh, age 45 or so. Now, let me explain to you why financial independence was, was preoccupying my mind and headspace so much. I realized I took on a lot of debts a lot, a lot of debts when I first started out, right? And my, I, I had no headspace to think about anything else, about relationships, about uh, projects, about uh, new ideas. So all day long, I'm just slogging away, working at the cases, uh, trying to pay off these debts. So it was a case of living like almost like hand to mouth. And I realized that this kind of... Um, existing is it drains your soul and it drains you and it causes burnout so that's why uh, as far as, as i was concerned my obsession was basically to clear off all the debts that i owed and you know i i'm blessed and i'm lucky that i was able to do so uh, given a few opportunities here and there to be able to be debt free at age 45 now that was a turning point for me Really, it was a turning point for me because the moment I was debt-free, my life changed. Not in terms of possessions, right? Not, I, I, in fact, I didn't want to possess any more things and I didn't want to buy more things because then I'll be always worried about getting into more debt. And what happened was that I started to look into computing. I developed my own software. I started to look, in, to, to look at expanding 
my knowledge in other areas. I started to pursue my other interests. I started to look at new relationships and, you know, uh, considering even like now, you know, mentoring people like Boon Chong and so forth, which I find very, very fulfilling. Mm. So, so, so this is, this to me was my, my experience. Yeah, Mark, uh, I just like to ask, probe a bit further on what you said, because I found it very, uh, very interesting that, you know, you said that it took a lot of debt and then your life reached a turning point when you reached, quote unquote, financial independence at 45, when you were finally debt free and you had a headspace to think about things beyond being a slave to paying off you know, that mountain of debt that you accrued from a young age. Because one thing that I think that fire kind of instills in our generation is that debt is a bad thing. <laughs> I, I feel that that is one of the really key selling points of, of fire from some like proponents and advocates for it. Like it's come to a point, right, where like studies and reports and newspapers have said that, you know, our generation has shown like this inclination or this propensity to like shy away and delay like housing, don't get a car together, and like we associate this with crippling debt, you know. Because every time, right, if you want to reach financial independence, it's like a math equation, right? Like you earn a certain salary for X X amount of salary for X number of years, and then you want to reach a certain amount of money in your bank account by a certain age so that you can retire early. That's the generally like I, I guess the way some maybe insurance agents and financial advisors like go about yeah. uh, with their they have their software and then they try to calculate for you, you know, what, how much you need to earn, how much you need to invest and so on. So like this whole movement and this whole um, view towards debt has led to people shying away from debt itself. And because, you know, they, they sell it as don't be a slave to that kind of debt and, and that your life will take much, much longer to turn around. So in order to reach that financial independence, right, according to these like math equations and this software and stuff, like you want to make sure that you accrue as little debt as possible. And I'm thinking, I'm just thinking from your life experience, right? What do you think towards that view? Like, how do you feel towards that view? I don't think you can escape that if you want to accumulate wealth. That's, there's no way you can save or you can use your salary in order to then start saving and then accumulate wealth to live a certain lifestyle, right? So first, how I started out was that I asked myself, how much do I need for a certain lifestyle? That means I had a vision of a lifestyle that I want. I think a lot of people suffer this. They don't have a clear vision of what the lifestyle is supposed to be. And then you start on to take on more debts than actually that is necessary. So once, I, so once I had a clear vision, I knew exactly how much money I needed. And then with a combination of savings, I knew that I could not reach that level. So I had to take on those debts. It's not a question of me trying to avoid taking the debt. Uh, the next, 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 next approach is this. Um, when I'm taking on the debt, the thing that I uh, am looking for is investment opportunities. It means that there must be some way that I take this money. It's not to, to, to spend, but to take this money to invest into something so that we can yield the returns. The problem with investment at that point in time was that there was a lot of, I'm supposed it's the same for you as well, a lot of investment opportunities offered by insurance agents, uh, stocks and shares and so forth. But I was hesitant because literally you are taking borrowing money and then letting some other third party or somebody fondle that money or fondle or handle that money. If they are honest and if the information is correct, yeah, suppose you you are lucky, you get your money back. But uh, in four or five investments that I tried this way with through third parties, I've basically made a loss. I've invested in a wakeboarding company. I've invested in a bicycle company. I've invested in some stocks and shares, and all made losses for me. So I shied away from investments where I have to put my money on to another person. I, I learned to mistrust institutions as well. So then I started relooking at my investment portfolio and I say, actually, the greatest person uh, who I can invest in is myself. And st I started to build my own business, started to look at myself and what are my abilities, capabilities, and I say, instead of uh, letting somebody fondle this borrowed money, 
why don't I borrow the money from the bank and then start, you know, doing my own projects and, you know, <coughs> upping my skills so that I can start uh, getting the rewards. And I think that worked very well for me. Yeah, that's actually quite an inspiring story. I think that, you know, one thing that I kind of discern or I tend to hear about from my grandparents, right, and from people who are older, is that actually they tend to have that distrust in institutions and general public shares and stocks. Because the generation that came before us, they've been burnt by a few sagas, right? There was that Malaysia plop saga where Mahathir, I think, you know, around like end of 1990s, he unilaterally closed trading for all those kind of Malaysian companies by Singaporeans. And then I had a few relatives that lost their fortune and their savings completely from this kind of investment controversy. Leaping off this, Vera, like, how we went from debt to stocks, right? Can you like maybe tell us a bit how you view debt and on top of that, like how you view, you know, stocks and shares and investments and putting money with, with third parties to have your money grow? Mm. Um, I think some in, especially living in Singapore and like with the news, right, of how Singapore has just overtaken Hong Kong to be like the most expensive Asian city to live in. Um, yeah, yeah. Like it literally just came out. So I think it's quite apt also that we're talking about it. But um yeah, I think living in Singapore, uh it's quite inevitable to to chalk up debt, like whether it's student debt or like housing debt or education debt. I don't think there's anything scary about taking on debt. I and also in that vein, the government does also have guidelines and laws implemented to make sure that you know you're not way in over your head and that the debt that you're taking on the loans that you're taking on are also proportionate to your income and in your repayment and your servicing ratio whatsoever so i think in that vein uh, that isn't that scary but talking about putting uh, your money in third-party organizations like what uh, mark mentioned right about how he invested in like weak boarding companies and other companies that didn't really reap him the benefits he wanted and uh, i did feel the same way when i first started exploring investment as well because like I mentioned, I'm, I'm quite the finance noob. Lah. So everything that I know, it's through like friends or like word of mouth. So when I first started investing, I was very hesitant to invest because I also have a very low risk appetite. And you know, with especially things like, like core options or whatever, it's very risky. And I was, I started out with robo investing. So it was, it was also quite like for the, for the idiot, lah. like investing for idiots, right? You just chuck your money there and you just leave it and you don't really have to touch it, touch it or like do anything about it. But also, I think calculated investments is, is comfortable for especially for like young people our age who've only like started earning income like one or two years ago. We don't really have that much wealth to invest in the first place. Actually, on that note, I did have a client recently, uh, NTUC Income. Uh, they did, they also recently released, this is not a plug for them by the way, but they released a new product called Snack where you can start investing from as low as like $1, which is very appealing to like students or people with not much income uh, or just starting out because, you know, the, the barrier to entry isn't that high. And I think there's merit in stashing your money away, pun not intended, but yeah, stashing your money away in third-party places with calculation because... Like my friends always remind me, you know, like for every minute that your money is spent sitting in your bank account, it's like inflation is eating at it. So if you can find a way to to curb infl- inflation through your investments or even break even, then that would beat even just simply leaving it in your bank account or your savings account. So yeah, I think my my relationship with investing is is still, you know, I'm still navigating it, but I think I've I've made a lot of peace with it and. And the risks that come with it as well. Thanks, thanks a lot for sharing that, Vera. Actually, you know, if you just go back to the point on debt and shares, right? I think for the first point on debt, mm. actually, uh, there's been a lot of literature on this. And uh, recently, I've you know listened to some um, source materials, maybe podcasts, rep- and read materials on debt, right? And mm. at least in the past year or so. And I've read like uh, this very controversial statement that you know the difference between the rich and the poor is how they view debt. Okay. Yeah, and the statement goes like, the rich never shy away from debt because it is necessary and it can, in fact, in other parts of the world, like the US and the UK, cause them to save a lot of money in terms of capital gains tax, so on and so forth. And their willingness to, to borrow, especially for business owners, borrow against their shares as a mm. company so that they have that disposable income without compromising on you know their intangible assets at hand. 
Yeah, whereas the poor, okay, I mean, it's a bit controversial, but for the poor, when it comes to like being a work kind of being an employee, most of the time, there is more of that propensity to shy away from that as a result of, you know, you having that disposable income and having that safety net and not have one thing to have that, you know, negative balance or, or chip away at the balance on your on your personal balance sheet. And then it really goes both ways because to some extent, some of the advice, right, that you see online, on like social media sites or, or maybe even YouTube, uh, YouTube channels that advocate financial advice, it can go as far as saying that, you know, Maybe you want to set up a company so that you can like gain access to greater leverage, even if the company is not in the business of doing a real business, for example. And there are people that, are, that advocate this kind of advice, right? Depending on who looks at the advice, I, I, I find that they view it so differently. Like from someone who comes from a, a very well-off background, they're like, yeah, um, my dad does this. Or you know, I've, I've talked to people who think that, you know, yeah, it's all about gaining that extra access to leverage because these are people that are very used to having that kind of negative balance in their balance sheet or like, not balance per se, but like that, that kind of debt or liability on their balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Compared to like people who are less exposed to such strategies that, you know, number one, they're not very good at handling this kind of debt because, you know, they can, can come to a point if you don't play your cards right, that it destroys you financially to a point where it is extremely hard for you to recover. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about that, but I find that people tend to take it so differently depending on their social economic background and what they are looking to do with the debt in general. Mm-hmm. May I? May I? May I chime in here? Because yeah, yeah, of course, Mark. I think you have touched uh, something that's sort of like uh, resonated with me quite deeply. And yeah, sure. Please go ahead. Let me share with you two parts here. I want to talk about debt and age. Debt and your age. And then the other one is debt versus expenditure and investments. So if we talk about debt and age, I think you are perfectly correct that um, if you shy away from debt at a very young age, then you are actually not going to be successful because you have to take on risk when you are young. And this is something I find uh, very strange that the young people are more at risk averse than the old people. You know? If you have youth on your side, right, I don't think you should squander it away in, in that sense. So. When I was young, right, I took on debt because I realized that I took on more risk and more debt because, you know, I had youth on my side, I had energy and I can work it out. But now that I'm older, I'm I'm debt adverse. So debt adversity should only come when you are older, not when you are young. That's the first that I wanted to share. The second is what do you do with your debt? Most cases I saw of people failing in their debt management is that they actually take the debt and then they spend the money on lifestyle expenses like buying Ferrari, buying branded goods, you know, like spending on luxury items. But if you if you use the money for your debt wisely, like investing wisely in yourself or even like what Vera says in good in good counters and good trades. I don't see why it is a bad, bad debt or you will end up in what we call a bad debt. I don't see why. It's just good risk-taking. So that's what I wanted to share. Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot, Mark. I think we, we've talked about enough about uh, debt, debt and shares. I think we can maybe move on to you know, some, some of the less talked about issues with fire. You know, when people talk about fire, I think that one problem with, you know, usually the software or the math equations that people use to calculate how much you need to save by a certain age, you know, to retire early. Mm-hmm. One problem or one issue that, you know, people have criticized this math doing for is that number one, it tends to not account for personal emergencies in your family, right? Let's because let's say you grow up to a certain age, and then let's say you had a goal of saving 1.5 million by a certain age, right? Like, okay, that, that's hypothetically 40 years old. Mm. And then you retire at 40, and let's say at 45, maybe let's say your parents, one of your parents hits a, has a critical medical emergency and you need to fork out a huge amount of money to, you know, pay off that kind of emergency. So, like, some critics of FIRE have, you know, brought up the fact that you can't do the math because you can't really anticipate all these future events. Okay. The second greatest obstacle to fire, on top of the fact that, you know, there are all these unanticipated expenses that may come up in the in the time that you retire, right, is, you know, the possibility of recession, right? Because the thing is, from my own social network, a lot of my peers who are around my age, they are fully invested, which means that 90 to 95% of their combined assets are in the stock market. 
or in some form of investment, some form of investment opportunity. And they are completely fine like riding that recession as and when it comes because it has come to a point, you know, where some financial pundits and uh, pundits and experts think that recessions are, you know, for the most part, a cyclical thing, even though, you know, some people feel that recent events say otherwise. And as someone who has sailed through multiple recessions, do you, do you, do you have any views towards how recessions should affect the way you handle your finances, Mark? Okay, I just want to correct you. I have gone through five recessions, actually, but I have never failed to weather through them. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and I, I think I'm weathering through the longest one now with a healthy cash flow. So I have a very healthy cash reserves. So I started out with, in, in my business, right? I worked out on a monthly basis many years ago uh, how much I need for my overhead expenses. And I was told by a banker that I should have uh, cash reserves or at least three months. So of course it was very, very difficult to have cash reserves of three months when I first started out. So in the first few years or so, right, I had cash reserves of maybe about a month or so. But I was obsessed over it. And I can tell you now I have cash reserves of about many one time point in time at this stage now about for a year one year but the, the problem is this that if you you have to it's not about hoarding cash if you hoard too much cash that's no good because like what you said exactly inflation eats at it right and mm. you, you don't want to do too much of that but not having cash reserves that's also reckless so the the art is to measure how much cash reserves you need so this one was particularly long, this uh, COVID-19 situation. And if we didn't have the one-year cash reserves, I don't think we would have been able to weather in some of the problems. Yeah, then uh, with regards to Vera, maybe from your perspective, because you know we've only weathered like probably this COVID-19 pandemic and how it's affected the economy. Maybe you can share your experiences if, uh, if that has in any way impacted your, your finances or whether you've learned anything as a result of going through this pandemic? Mm, I think, um, yeah, going to the workforce, uh, luckily I've only had to weather this recession and hopefully not, not many more, but um, <laughs> I'm lucky enough that I managed to keep my job through the brunt of it, the brunt of the whole COVID situation. So um, I'm very blessed and thankful about that. And I even actually managed to, to switch our jobs as you've learned. So that's something that I'm very thankful for as well. And I know not many people have had the same experiences or privilege. But I guess in a more personal sense, this whole situation has impacted, if anything, more of like my housing situation, like I mentioned uh, to you earlier. And uh, which is so to give some context, right? I've been, I'm in that stage of life where like, I'm trying to um, get a house and settle, move on to the next phase of life. And we've, so my partner and I, we've tried to BTO. So BTO is Singapore's uh, built to order scheme where you put in a ballot for public housing. And we've tried to BTO nine times and we have failed wow. all of them. Yeah, so we haven't, we've, we haven't managed to get like a queue number at all. Yeah, so that's very unfortunate. And we even spoke to the MP like during the Meet the People session to get him to write an appeal for us to HDB. So that has been quite demoralizing. And so moving on, right, we've been trying to shift our strategies to get looking more at a resale house instead. But of course, you know, with the whole uh, economy now, like they always say, it's not a biased market now, right? So I think housing prices are at all-time high right now and everyone is also on the on the lookout uh, to get a, get a flat. So it's not great. <laughs> and uh, on top of that, like there are other uh, factors to consider such as like a lot of delays in the renovations because of like, you know, supply chain issues. And even for, for those like my peers who have managed to get a BTO, because of the COVID situation, like, it's been pushed back by like one, two years and which kind of like put, puts a, a, a wrench in like things and your long-term plans. La. I think um, that is how I have been the most affected by this situation. And to be very honest, um, we, I, I, feel, I feel like we went through a recession without actually realizing we were going through a recession until one day we looked at the numbers and we were like, oh, well, shit. <laughs> yeah. So I think navigating this whole concept of a recession is very new to people like me and perhaps you as well because we are just fresh into the workforce. And like when the whole Lehman Brothers incident happened, what, that was over 10 years ago. 
and I had family members who were very affected by it and I never understood it. I never I never understood the concept of like um bonds and stocks and losing like your lifetime savings. But now the reality is getting a truer for me. So that's just a millennials experience going through something very new and global. Well, let me just tell you something. You will bounce back. So if you don't don't lose heart, that's all I want mm. to say. Thank you. <laughs> that's very heartening coming from someone who has been through five recessions. <laughs> yeah, I mean for the housing issue, right? I actually have a very similar experience with you know some of my peers and myself, like. Okay, personally for myself, we've been looking for, I've, I've been contemplating the idea of going to start, you know, balloting for a BTO. Mm. And um, I think the strategy or like the experience that I've been hearing from my peers is generally that it's been very bad. Like oversubscription has been through the roof for like the more prime locations. And as a result, the strategy is always like you ballot X number of times. And then if it doesn't work out, then you start looking at resale and private houses, right? Yeah. But then get to stomach the fact that you probably may there's a possibility you won't make money out of that property out of yes. purchasing that property yeah yeah which is a huge thing because you know when you talk to adults or talk to people of the older generation like how do you make money from property right generally mm. the most fail safe way is you get the bto first because that is like most of the time like guaranteed profit making if you sell it mm-hmm. right if you if you intend to close that property after a few years after the mop period the minimum occupancy period mm. yeah I, I was thinking maybe mark do you have any um thoughts on profit, the property market in Singapore, you know, having purchased maybe one one or more properties here? Well, I can't, I can't tell you what the current property market landscape is looking at now because I'm actually off the loop. I'm not looking at this now presently, but I can share with you from my past experiences. And yeah, I of think, course. Yeah, but and a lot of it is basically right time. So I don't think you will see this kind of surges anymore. So I started out actually owning or getting a four-room flat in Tampines. And that was where we were. And then it was a resale flat. So we didn't have this concept of BPO then. So there were new flats coming up and I saw around the neighborhood. And I suppose that was when we first knew about this BPO concept. And I suspected that if the newer flats came out, right, my property just across the street would drop in value. So I quickly sold that away, right? I didn't make a lot of profit, but I sold that away. And I took a risk in buying a condominium after that, right? And this was, uh, this is where I'm currently living. So I've never really speculated in property. And I have never moved since then. So I've been living where I have been living in the condo and just paying off the debt for many years. But the property prices, the price that I bought my present private condo right, uh, has shot up. The amount that has gone up is, is mind-boggling. And I, I know the paper value now is worth much more than what I paid. Oh, I don't see that kind of jumps anymore and I don't think it is possible for the younger generation at least in Singapore because the property market is I think if I'm right pretty mature now so property investment I, I don't know I'm not too keen the prices are too high and that's why you see that I'm, I'm not putting my money there Mm, I see. Thanks so much, Mark, for sharing. You know, I was thinking, you know, perhaps as our final topic, since, you know, we have, you know, Mark here who is currently based in the UK, right? I was thinking, since you're talking about retirement and financial independence, I thought that we should maybe perhaps discuss, given the recent news that Singapore is second in terms of like the most expensive city in the world to live, second only to, I believe, Tel Aviv in Israel. Have you ever thought about immigrating to then, you know, because when you immigrate to another country, let's say post-retirement or at a much later age, what happens is that the amount of money that you have saved by then, right, could then allow you to, you know, weather the remainder of your lifetime in a country that is a lot more affordable with lower cost of living. So I was thinking of this like in a two-pronged manner, like maybe uh, first on Mark, in terms of how has residing in the UK for this amount of time 
you, do you see that difference in cost of living? Does it have a material impact on your finances? And maybe from Vera on whether you've ever considered immigrating to another country after a certain amount of time in Singapore and it's and that effect on your finances as well. Yeah, maybe you can start with Mark. Yeah. So it's a very good question, actually. And this is part of my retirement plan. <laughs> so I told you, <laughs> I, I, I don't think it impacts me in terms of just finances, right? I think it's more than that. It's, it impacts me on a mental level, on a spiritual level. Even my health has improved since coming here. You, you got to understand that I have chose Manchester deliberately. Uh, as opposed to London, which is the more expensive place. Moving to a place like London is no different from staying in Singapore. It is mm. crowded, it is expensive, it is a major city. Right? Whereas I'm a city boy, so I, I can't live in a rural country setting and I can't just go to a beach you know, and have no infrastructure. So I, I came up north, right, which is much, much cheaper in the UK, it is still a city, but it is a city, just imagine Singapore back in the 1970s. It's not as rural or ulu as they say with kampongs and so forth. No, it's got high skyscrapers and so forth. But you have a population of only 2.5 million people here on a land space bigger than Singapore. So there's a lot of space in Manchester and if it's not so pressurizing. You don't have to rush for seats. You don't have to rush for anything. And pace of life is much slower here because it's near the countryside and where the food is. So these are the things that I am considering now and I am taking in as more important in my life. Yeah, how about its impact on cost of living? Do you see that a material difference then for your finances? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the cost of living here is like, you know, 25% cheaper than if I were to be living in Singapore. The only, the only downside is transport. You know, the transport cost here is very expensive, public transport. But in terms of food, in terms of um, household expenses and so forth, right, uh, you will be surprised it's much cheaper than in Singapore. So uh, let, me, let me give you a, a very classic example. If, if you all, many of you Singaporean listeners will remember uh, one of our ministers said, it's not like eating steak mignon uh, every day, that Singaporeans you know, cannot afford to do that every day. But let me tell you here at the supermarket, right? you can eat steak mignon if you wish to every day. It is only, <laughs> it is only three pounds. That's about six, seven dollars. Oh, no way. No way, right? Yes. This is how cheap it is. This is steak mignon. If you are not into luxurious things, fancy lifestyle, but if you are appreciative of you know, good food, fresh food, uh, not dressed up, you know, if you go to a restaurant, of course the price goes up because then you are paying for the manpower to cook your steak and so forth. But you are happy to go to the supermarket to buy the steak yourself. And this is not the cheapest supermarket, mind you. Or you can go to the farm itself to get the meat. And you can come back and cook it yourself, right? It's very, very cheap. There's no way you can you can get that kind of lifestyle here. Yeah, then what about Vera yourself? Have you ever thought about, you know, immigrating, I mean migrating to another country outside of Singapore, past a certain age and living somewhere else, you know, in furtherance of like a lower cost of living, different pace of life, which I'm sure that tends to be the biggest complaint about, you know people our age of living here and going through the education system. Mm. So mm, yeah, actually my partner did float this idea to me. Like he did ask, oh, oh, how will you feel about moving here, moving to this place after retirement? And like, ironically, right, I, I'm like, Mark, I'm like, a, I'm a city person. So I cannot, absolutely cannot deal with having nothing. Like I cannot be seeing like trees for three miles and no end. Yeah, so I need to be around people where it's noisy, where there are lights and everything. So I actually find it very comfortable here in Singapore, much contrary to popular belief. And I actually enjoy crowds, which is yeah, a very controversial statement. But like my friends are always like you know complaining about how it's so crowded, it's so hot and everything. Like I'm thriving. 
I, I really enjoy it, like the, the cityscape of Singapore. So Not during of, COVID. Uh. Uh, yeah, except, you know, when it's a public health risk, but other than that, it's <laughs> fine. <laughs> yeah. but So I'm actually pretty comfortable in Singapore, but definitely the, the, the idea of like being an expert, I've definitely thought with it. Lah. And so I know this doesn't really answer your question because I'm talking more about like while still being in the workforce as opposed to like after having exited the workforce. But I, I have interacted with a couple of expert friends here in Singapore. And ironically, they're actually from the UK. So they kind of like swap places with Mark. And yeah, they do seem to have it really well here, especially with the relocation packages and everything. And I guess the part of contention for me in moving, whether it's for work purposes or retirement purposes, doesn't lie so much in the cost of living over there, but rather in how well we can assimilate into the community. Like that would be a bigger cause for concern for me because especially in like non-english speaking countries right like you don't you don't speak the language you can't read the signs you can't order from local like restaurants so i think that would be really difficult for me but having said that to answer your question i think moving to a place with a lower cost of living is great because you are immediately bumped up a couple of notches right in the in the class mm. over there but i think that something has to give. La. Like, you can't have the best of both worlds. So, perhaps your standard of living won't be the same as compared to in Singapore. And there are a lot of other factors to consider as well, like safety. And especially if you mo- you're moving to a country with, like, a generally a lower GDP, then perhaps safety might be compromised. I'm just generalizing here, but yeah. So, I think, like, for me, the factors lies a lot more in just financials purely. But it's like a... Like a couple of things working in tandem. Yeah. Yeah, it's like there's opportunity costs. Like, is it worth lowering your cost of living and being subject to this, like, security risk, safety yeah. risk? Yeah, it can, uh, really resonates with me. I, I, I can actually agree with Vera. There are trade-offs. Mm. So it's not all milk and honey here. Right? There are trade-offs that you have to, you have to accept. So, you know, it's cold here. As I told you, transport is not cheap here. Right? There is a cultural difference and whether you can assimilate or not is different. They look at things differently. Right? The question is, is, is exactly what Vera say is whether you can tolerate these things. So if you can tolerate it right, and if you can thrive in it, then it is a viable option. Okay, I think uh, that's all the time we have today, actually. Maybe just to simply and quickly conclude on the things that we've spoken about. Uh, mm. We first talk about the sources of information for FIRE and how you have to maybe filter some of the related information you see online because there's just so much information and literature on the topic. Um, an example is that you just can't, you can't just read you know, Wall Street bets and take everything you see there as gospel for our listeners out there. <laughs> and secondly, yeah. we talk a bit about uh, our views on that and how maybe at a younger age, you know, as Mark said and discussed, you have to be a bit more willing to take on debt relative to as you get older. Of course, uh, this debt has to be managed accordingly and applied towards the right things. It has to be risk-taking to a measured and calculated degree to things that, that maybe outpace the interest of the debt, for instance. After that, the third thing we discussed was about, you know, recessions and having sufficient cash flow, weathering through recession, making sure that your assets are in order during these times so that in times when the economy is taking a nosedive, you're able to persist through that stage. Be it whether you're an employee that is at risk of losing your job or you're a business owner who is running a business at risk of taking the brunt of the economic impact. And of course, the last thing we kind of discussed was immigration and you know whether it was something at the forefront of both a millennial and a baby boomer's mind when it comes to lowering your cost of living and the opportunity cost that comes with that lower cost of living across different countries if and when you decide to retire or move to a different country with financial implications in mind. That being said, thank you so much, Vera and Mark, for coming as guests on my podcast today. And this is, this is Boon Chong in the sixth episode of my podcast, Millions Unfiltered. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, thank Boon you. Chong. Thank, thank you. you.